0: Welcome to Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. Today I interview moral philosopher Toby Ord.
1: If you look at all the words that have been written about philosophy, I don't know when the median word was written, but it's probably something like 1970.
0: And now, my interview with Toby Ord. Dr. Toby Ord is a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Oxford in the philosophy department and the founder of Giving What We Can, a charitable organization focused on giving to the most cost-effective charities in the world. Toby, welcome to the show. Uh, Thanks for having me on. Toby, much of your work concerns consequentialism, so I'd like to start by asking you to explain for us what consequentialism is and what some of the major arguments against it have been?
1: Okay, Uh, well, there are three main types of ethical theory uh, that uh, philosophers discuss. So uh, one of these is consequentialism, uh, which is a theory that's fundamentally interested in making the world as good a place as possible and thinks that that's what ethics is fundamentally about. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, another type of theory is uh, one called uh, deontology, uh, which says that ethics is fundamentally about obeying moral rules. Uh, so, you know, uh, don't lie, don't steal, uh, don't kill, uh, things like that. Uh, and another type of ethical theory is called virtue ethics, and says that ethics is fundamentally about being a person of good character. Uh, so, you know, being noble and brave and uh, generous and uh, having the, these virtues. So these are kind of three broad traditions. Uh, and a little bit more about consequentialism itself. Uh, so the idea is that ethics is about making the world as good a place as possible. And uh, if that's a bit vague. Uh, you can flesh that out in different ways. So there are heaps of different consequentialist theories. Mm-hmm. The most famous of these is called utilitarianism, uh, which is the theory that uh, that what we should do is act so as to make uh, the world uh, as happy a place as possible. So to maximize the sum of happiness among all entities that can be happy uh, and what you could do is you could have other types of consequentialist theory although utilitarianism is the most famous uh, so for example you could say well we don't want to maximize the sum uh, we want to maximize the average or you could say we want to maximize a weighted sum uh,
0: mm-hmm.
1: in some manner or you could say that for each individual what matters isn't nearly isn't happiness uh, but is something else maybe it's preference satisfaction or maybe it's uh, uh, some list of, uh, of features that make a life good and so you can have heaps of modifications like that. You could even say that uh, when an act of injustice is performed, uh, that makes the world worse. So you take that into account. You can have heaps of different theories like this, although utilitarianism is certainly the, uh, the most supported one by consequentialists. So That's, that's what consequentialism is, and uh, uh, it kind of is contrasted with this, some, some of these other aspects. So some arguments against consequentialism are really just arguments for the other types of theory. So, for example, people might just think, "Well, consequentialism isn't very plausible because ethics is fundamentally about hard and fast rules that you cannot ever break, um, or that ethics is fundamentally about being a person of good character." So, they're kind of positive arguments for the other approaches. Uh, whereas some approaches, some uh, arguments against it are explicit attacks. So, a good example of that is that they say, uh, "On consequentialist theories, uh, you're allowed to do uh, uh, any uh, thing, no matter how abhorrent seeming." Uh, if it leads to good enough consequences, mm-hmm. uh, so uh, they attack attack it because it it lets you do bad things in order to get good outcomes. So that's that's one form of attack, and the other big form of attack is that it doesn't allow you to be partial uh, to your friends or your family or to yourself. Instead, uh, it's generally conceived of as a kind of class of impartial theories uh, where you have to with kind of large demands on you. Uh, If it turns out that you can help other people uh, more cheaply than you can help yourself, uh, then maybe we have to uh, give a lot of our money away in order to do this or a lot of our time or something else. So these are a couple of ways in which uh, which people attack it.
0: Now, Toby, you've done some theoretical work which attempts to address some of the complaints against consequentialism. Uh, For example, in your bachelor's thesis, consequentialism and decision procedures. Could you explain what the theoretical moves you've made are?
1: Uh, yeah sure. Uh, so uh, in my uh, uh, yeah mySL thesis and also in my uh, doctoral thesis uh, which is an extension of that work okay. uh, i've I've looked at at basically a different conception of consequentialism or a different way of understanding consequentialism uh, which broadens its scope compared to how it's normally con- construed. Uh, so uh, on the normal, kind of accounts uh, that you hear about consequentialism. So, for example, if you go and do a philosophy course about it, uh, they'll tell you that it's about acts and that they'll say that the, the fundamental principle of consequentialism is something like this. An act is right if and only if it leads to an outcome which is better than all other outcomes. Mm-hmm. That's what they'll say. And they'll focus really on acts, uh, whereas I think that you shouldn't just focus on acts. You should also assess uh everything else. Uh, so rules and character traits or motives uh, can be assessed according to the same principle. Uh, the right set of rules is the set of rules that leads to the best outcome and so on. Uh, and if you if you do this, you can get some kind of a partial unification of consequentialism with its main rivals, uh, deontology and virtue ethics, uh, because you can talk about rules in a similar way to how deontology does, and you can talk about virtues and character traits in a similar way to virtue ethics. So to see how this works, it's easiest to start with a uh, uh, an old objection that some people make to consequentialism, uh, which is which is a bad objection, uh, but it, in order to overcome it, you have to think of it, and uh, so it's quite useful. So the objection is that uh, they say, oh, maybe consequentialism is self-defeating, uh, because if we all behaved like consequentialists, uh, then we'd lead to a worse outcome uh, than if we didn't. Um, or even perhaps just if one person behaved like consequentialists, uh, that person uh, would lead to a worse outcome than if they behaved in some other way. So mm. consequentialism would then be self-defeating. There's some kind of a thing that has to be answered there. Uh, but kind of any consequentialist worth their salt would say, uh, well, if it turns out that, uh, empirically, um, if we believe this theory, um, or if we act on this theory, uh, that we lead to, uh, worse outcomes, so much the worse for believing on the, believing in this theory or acting on this theory. Uh, we mm-hmm. should, uh, endorse, um, whichever theory it is that, uh, leads to the best outcomes. Mm-hmm. We're not, uh, kind of slavish adherence to this, uh, this idea, I mean, we're only interested in it um, in so much as it leads to good outcomes. Uh, so that would be this kind of approach. Uh, so in my thesis, I, I looked at this and tried to work out how can you uh, spell this out and what kind of a theory can really deal with this. And so it's quite a few of the aspects of that are quite technical and uh, maybe less interesting, uh, but the basic idea really is to assess everything in terms of its uh, consequences. And so that, uh, for example, suppose we're considering uh, which what what are the best, uh, what's the best moral code um, or kind of professional code for doctors? Uh, is it a code where they say they treat the patient in front of them um, as kind of being all important and try to maximize the benefit for the person in front of them? Or is it a, you know, a utilitarian type of like a naively calculating approach where they try to kind of add up the benefits and costs of every action? And I think that it's quite plausible that actually we we'll lead to better outcomes if we use the former rather than the latter, uh, because more people will actually go to the doctors and so the idea, though, is that so you're looking in that case at a um, at a at a code of, of conduct, and you're, you're assessing it in consequentialist terms. Similarly, mm-hmm. you could assess uh, laws that are being made in consequentialist terms, uh, and you could even assess uh, character traits. Uh, is it is it good that I'm you know if I were being a very generous person? Well, you know what would the outcomes be of that? So it, it lets us uh, see why why rules and character traits and other things are really important things to focus on if we're thinking about ethics uh, without. Uh, having to uh, forgo a, co- a focus on consequences at the same time, and uh, one of the things that I point out in my thesis is that there's a lot of evidence that the early utilitarians, uh, like uh, Mill and Sidgwick, and possibly even Bentham, actually thought like this all along. Uh, so uh, that there's just been a bit of confusion, and in fact we've forgotten that they made a whole lot of comments uh, like this. Uh, in the 20th century, people who who care about consequentialism got very fixated on act but I think Mm -hmm. if you look before that, you find that there is less of it. Mm
0: -hmm. So that's the
1: kind of approach. Uh, It could be seen uh, by people like me as an attempt to uh, unify consequentialism with the best ideas from deontology and virtue ethics, or it could be seen by uh, my uh, opponents as an attempt to swallow up uh, these other theories uh, within consequentialism, depending on whether they look favorably on the project.
0: Well, Toby, I have a series of posts on my blog called Mm -hmm. Living Without a Moral Code, And I describe my predicament as being that I'm really motivated to make the world a better place. I I really want to do what's right. Um, Maybe it's my religious upbringing or something that makes morality so important to me. But the problem is that I don't know what it is that would make the world a better place because I'm not very confident about any particular theory of meta-ethics or normative ethics and so you know of of course uh, philosophers haven't come to any consensus on those issues either so how could someone like myself deal with that kind of fundamental moral uncertainty where it's not just a matter of not being sure which charity will do the best in helping people or something like that but you know not being sure about fundamental moral principles at all but wanting to be moral how can we deal with that kind of moral uncertainty
1: well uh, that's a very good question and uh, uh, it's it's one of the things that I'm uh, quite interested in uh, interestingly there has been very little focus on that type of question in modern academic ethics, mm-hmm. at least analytic ethics, uh, and it, despite it being a universal predicament, I mean, I'm not sure of uh, what the best moral principles are either, mm-hmm. uh, and no one is, or if they are sure, then they shouldn't be sure. Uh, they don't have enough uh, epistemic <laughs> justification to be sure. Uh, so we're all in situations where we should be giving some small credence, of, at least a small credence, to uh, you know, uh, to a whole lot of different uh, ethical theories when we, when we think about these things. Uh, now, interestingly, uh, so it's, so it's a case we're all in, uh, and it's, it's particularly interesting to try to work out how to deal with it. So, one approach, uh, might be to say, look at your theories, look at, find the theory that has the kind of, you have the highest highest credence in, so the theory that you, uh, you support the most, uh, and to just do whatever it says. Uh, but it, it's, it, on some reflection, you can see that that can't be right, uh, because if you do that, it might be that um, your credence, let's say, is evenly split between 100 different theories, or almost evenly. One of them has slightly more, um, and that one says to to do a certain thing. But all of the other theories say that that would be kind of gravely irresponsible to do that thing, and that you shouldn't do it. Um, it seems like you shouldn't, in that case, just kind of uh, promote one of them uh, to be the you know to be as if believed as if it's true. So you might think, you know, given that kind of case, ah, well, what we need to do instead is not to think of it as the theory choice. Level, uh, but to think of it as, as thinking about the acts one at a time. And in that particular case, if you thought, do the act that has the highest probability of being uh, permissible morally, uh, then you would do the other act in that case. So it'd get you out of trouble on that one, uh, but it would run into its own problems. Uh, there might be a case where you, you're you're kind of unsure between two different theories, and you think one of them is just slightly more probable than the other, uh, but uh, but it turns out that. Uh, so, the, so therefore, the, the act that the first one, let's say the slightly more probable one, suggests, has the highest chance of being permissible, um, if they conflict. Uh, but in that case, the, uh, uh, it might be that the other one says there's much more at stake. It says that no, this is a, a huge difference uh, between uh, doing something that's absolutely gravely wrong and something that's uh, uh, that's really uh, virtuous. Or uh, you know, another theory that you're more confident in says there's not much at stake. In that case, it seems like you should hedge your bets and uh, uh, and worry about the one that says there's more at stake. So uh, then you might think, well, okay, <laughs> how are we supposed to deal with this? Maybe it's something more like the way that we uh, deal with empirical kinds of uncertainty. So where we what we do in those cases is we try to uh, maximize the expected benefit. So we've got this idea from decision theory about expected benefits, where you multiply the probabilities by how good things would be. Uh, in the cases in order to work out what you should do. Uh, so this is mm-hmm. I think a more uh, plausible approach but it turns out that it runs into a whole lot of trouble as well because it's very difficult to do comparisons of value between the different theories so suppose one of the theories is something like utilitarianism and says we should uh, maximise happiness uh, and let's suppose that we could do something uh, such as killing uh, 10 people to save the lives of 11 people and uh, and uh, utilitarianism. Mm. Let us suppose there are no other side effects of this action, uh, and utilitarianism says that's good. Uh, but and your other theory, uh, let's say Kantianism, uh, says that's really wrong uh, to do that. Uh, you know, how are you supposed to make a decision there? Uh, at what? How confident would you have to be in utilitarianism before you should do that? It seems like we need some way of comparing how important utilitarianism thinks the benefit of one life is Mm. to how important Kantianism thinks.
0: Yeah, it's hard to see how you could put those two theories on the same scale of value.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, So uh, so that's a big challenge, and uh, there are a couple of different approaches to dealing with that, which are, you know, uh, quite theoretical, but one of them is to try to work out a version where you never have to do any Explicit comparisons of the values between the theories. You just look at the structure of each theory, and you use some clever tricks to try to find examples where they think there's the same, the same structure between several cases, and uh, and try to use these tricks in order to uh, to rank the theories. I think that n- that can't really be done, and that you have to actually kind of crack open the theories and look inside them at what they're saying in order to get the right decisions. Um, but it's it's really interesting. Uh, uh, theoretical stuff there, uh, but it's unfortunately it's at you know a very uh, early stage of development, and uh, there are only a few philosophers looking at this. Um, it's really the last 15 years or something where it's started to become uh, a topic in its own right, uh, and uh, so I don't have all that much advice as to as to how to deal with this practically now. Although you can see that in in some cases uh, these things would start to come up. So for example, uh, just as uh, the philosopher Peter Singer has an argument uh, to do with us having an obligation to donate a large portion of our money uh, to help fight global poverty. Uh, his mm-hmm. argument is that uh, it's analogous to a situation where we saw a child drowning, felt it was easily preventable, except we would ruin our, our suit, say, by, uh, by wading into the muddy water. Then that's a case where most people would think that a person acted wrongly if they just walked away mm-hmm. uh, in that case. Um, and yet, we tend not to think that when when someone could donate an amount of money equivalent to buying a nice suit uh, and save someone's life, that they buy the suit instead. We tend not to judge them as harshly. So here's this argument that uh, there's an inconsistency in our in our judgments there, and that mm-hmm. the uh, the kind of considered judgment really is that they're both uh, both equally wrong, rather than uh, that it's now permissible to uh, to leave children drowning in ponds. That that's another approach you could take. Uh, but here's this argument, and uh, it's a uh, Kind of debated a bit in the literature as to whether he's right about that. Uh, but you might then think, well, hang on a second. Uh, if I've got some level of credence that it's really wrong to uh, to let this happen, uh, then uh, maybe I should be donating more money than I'm donating in order to hedge my bets there. Uh, even if I think there's a 90% chance that he's wrong and that it's purely optional to donate money to charity, uh, maybe uh, you know this uh, serious possibility uh, that. Uh, you know, a lot of philosophers would say that I'm doing something really wrong. Maybe I should be taking that into account when I'm choosing my action. Uh, so you can see how how it could start to influence some things that people think. Uh, and we're often very tempted to just say, oh, I, you know, well, as it happens, I think Peter Singh is wrong about that, so I'll just go, ahead, go my own way. Uh, but we're... But I think that once you start to really look at how we have to deal with moral uncertainty, you can see that it's not enough to just say, oh, he's probably wrong. Uh, you would you'd need to be really quite sure. Uh, similarly, if you were firing a gun, uh, let's say through the bushes, you wouldn't want to just be kind of fairly convinced that there was no one in the bush. You would actually want to uh, you know, be your responsibility to do quite a lot of checking and get the probability down very small that there's someone there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's a similar situation here. So, uh, so hopefully that's that's some help about uh, practical help about how you want to weigh these things in.
0: Toby, I think all those ways of dealing with moral uncertainty are way too complicated, and I'm just going to become a <laughs> divine command theorist. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so you don't have any answers yet?
1: Uh, not really. Uh, I mean, it's a it's a really difficult uh, question, uh, but. At least this idea, I think, of, uh, of moral hedging uh, is, is quite important. It's, it's actually it's quite nice. It's related to an idea of uh, moral trade, uh, which you could have as well. Uh, if you have two, imagine not just one person who's uncertain about something, but imagine two people who have different moral preferences uh, and uh, where they might actually be able to get better benefits if they did some kind of a swap. So suppose one of them cares more strongly about issue A and the other one cares more strongly about issue B. Uh, in you know, they might be able to uh, swap votes on the matter and uh, uh, in order to get some mutually beneficial outcome. Uh, so uh, there are various examples of this. But I mean, here's an example that I know has happened where a friend of mine uh, has been in uh, uh, was in New Zealand and was interested in voting for one party and in the election as a two-horse race. And uh, her friend was going to vote for the other party and so they both decided to stay home instead of going to vote. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could have slightly more extreme examples of that where... One person was going to donate, let's say, hundred dollars to a, uh, um, a gun control charity, and another person was going to donate a hundred dollars to a uh, uh, kind of uh, gun uh, use uh, charity. I'm not sure what they are called, uh, like the NRA, uh, and uh, that they, uh, you know, could both decide instead to donate uh, the two hundred dollars uh, to Oxfam or, you know, some other group uh, mm-hmm. where they both agree with what it's doing. And it would seem that that's the type of win-win trade, uh, morally. Uh, which is quite interesting to think about those cases. And I think there's quite a interaction between them and moral uncertainty.
0: Well, even if you don't have the answers yet, I'm glad that you're at least working on those issues of moral uncertainty.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, some of the cases can be, can be really huge. Uh, so, uh, so, I mean, I gave some kind of philosophical uh, examples, but I guess the poverty case is getting fairly practical. There are similar issues about vegetarianism. Uh, and uh, if you if you hold some credence that it's wrong to eat meat uh, and you don't think that there's much chance that it's right to eat meat, then that could influence how you should decide, even if you mm-hmm. think that there's less than 50% chance that it's wrong. Uh, similarly, uh, there are some big issues when it comes to uh, evaluating uh, global catastrophes. Uh, so if it's uh, something like uh, climate change, perhaps you think that this could uh, uh, cause human extinction or maybe some other event could cause human extinction. Uh, human extinction is at least as bad as 6.8 billion deaths. Uh, but a lot of people think it's even worse, uh, that, uh, that all of the future people who could live, uh, you know, should count morally. Um, and maybe they think that there's going to be, you know, not just billions of them, but, uh, you know, hundreds of billions or trillions. Uh, so they might think that that component makes this, you know, thousands of times more important than we would naively think. But Alternate moral theories say that it's uh, that those future people don't count at all. Um, so you can get some kinds of radical uncertainty then about how important it is to uh, to avoid this kind of catastrophe. Is it, is it billions of times more important than saving one person's life, or is it trillions of times more important than saving one person's life? There's kind of radical disagreement. You might think that it doesn't matter because once it's billions of times more important, it's important enough. Uh, but it does end up mattering if the chances of these things actually are very small or mm-hmm. the level of risk that you can mitigate. Um, you can only change the probability by one in a million or something like that.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, while we're working on uh, those issues of moral uncertainty, uh, Uh we might still want to work on actually answering these fundamental moral questions so that we're not so uncertain about, you know, which normative theory would be right or that kind of thing. Um, But how does one go about deciding between the different uh, normative ethical theories that are on offer, you know, different versions of consequentialism, contractarianism, deontology, uh, virtue ethics?
1: Uh, yeah, well, that's a good question. Uh, and uh, uh, it certainly makes sense. Uh, even if you have a theory of uh, moral uncertainty, so how to act when you don't know uh, what's going on uh, with some of these philosophical questions, uh, you uh, you can see that there's still a large value of information, um, just as we might have a theory which says uh, if you don't know uh, what the card in someone's hand is when you're playing poker, um, that you know the right thing for you to do at the moment is to let's say is to fold, uh, but it could be that there's a huge value of information if you could find out something about what card they were holding, um, and uh, that you know that kind of principle still makes sense here. That even better than just acting under uncertainty is uh, is removing your uncertainty or lowering your uncertainty, yeah. and, and then you can make more sensible acts. Uh, but a lot of uh, people in uh, philosophy departments have been trying to. Uh, uh, to argue their cases between these different types of moral theory for quite a while. Uh, although, if you look at the history of philosophy, while it goes back more than 2,000 years, I mean, there were very few people doing it in the past and a lot more now. If you look at all the words that have been written about philosophy, I don't know when the median word was written, but it's probably something like 1970, right. uh, you know, <laughs> rather than the year 1000. So, Uh, Are these words all of equal quality? Uh, Well, the answer is probably no. And also, have there been diminishing marginal returns? Is it the case that we've worked out a lot of the basic stuff and now, um, you know, if someone wants to make progress, they're doing it on a more kind of constrained area? Um, Mm I think that's probably true. Uh, So, you can't just do it by the numbers, but I was just pointing that out. Uh, So, I think that there has been a bit of progress uh, made on some of these questions and the, certainly, the arguments pile up. Um, even if people haven't, uh, you know, come to firm conclusions about what type of theories are better, the kind of body of sensible argument uh, has been increasing. Uh, there's also, uh, as always in philosophy, a body of kind of stupid argument on some of these topics. Um, but uh, setting that aside, the, the amount of sensible argument has also been increasing. So, in the case of uh, of uh, consequentialist theories. Uh, I mean, I think that there is a lot of evidence in favour of them, uh, at the expense of, uh, of other theories. Uh, although, in some ways, uh, like with my work, it's not even at the expense of them. Um, it's possible that, in a certain sense, the deontological theories and virtue ethics theories are true, um, while in another sense, the cons- uh, I think a deeper sense, the consequentialist theories can be true at the same time. Uh, and this can be true if uh, the right, you know, if it is true that we ought to follow a certain set of rules. Um, but the set of rules that we ought to follow is one that's chosen based on its consequences, and if uh, we ought to have a certain character, but the character we should have is chosen based on its consequences, and we ought to act in certain ways, and the acts are chosen on their consequences. So it, it's kind of possible to have an underlying theory uh, that fits these things, uh, but as to uh, how in practice to do it, uh, you know, that's uh, um, it's difficult to say. I mean, the the obvious answer would be uh, enroll in a philosophy course, and uh, and and so on, but. Uh, as to how much more certain you'll be when you come out of the course, <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, it's it's uh, just quite tricky uh, to do. Mm.
0: Well, one of the more common ways of arguing between these different normative theories mm-hmm. is to argue about whether the conclusions of a particular theory agree with our moral intuitions about the matter. For example, if you know happiness utilitarianism tells us that we should kill an innocent person to harvest their organs to save the lives of five other people, Uh, but then our moral intuitions tell us that this would be highly immoral to kill this person, this innocent person, Um, then that somehow counts as evidence against happiness utilitarianism. Um, But why trust our moral intuitions in the first place? I mean, aren't they just evolved moral prejudices? Uh, do philosophers think that we have a morality module in the brain that can detect moral facts, and that's why our intuitions provide evidence for or against particular moral conclusions? What's the thinking there?
1: Well, I mean, that's, that's a good question, and, and definitely don't have a, a solid answer to it. Uh, Although, uh, I should say, this is uh, in some ways the virtue of philosophers is that they often know when uh, they don't know something, whereas uh, if you ask someone on the street, they might just assume that they have answers to all of those questions, Mm -hmm. uh, even though those answers are probably unjustified. I mean, I think that our intuitions do count as evidence in favor of uh, certain moral positions. Uh, However, I think it's fallible evidence. uh, In the same way as, suppose we, uh, uh, we want to know the relationship between the height at which you drop a ball. And the length of time it takes to hit the ground, and uh, uh, you know we know that there's a kind of parabolic uh, aspect here, um, but it might be that uh, that our stopwatch that we use to measure the times, uh, you know, we're not perfectly accurate at using that, and so uh, it turns out that there's a um, uh, there's noise in the data, and if we naively just tried to connect all of the dots on the chart we were making. We would get this very strange-looking line that kind of was roughly a parabola, but it had heaps of squiggles on it. Uh, and I think that that would be a mistake. Uh, what we should do in that case is to uh, to use Occam's razor and think that simplicity of your theory is a virtue. And in doing so, uh, that kind of approach helps to eliminate the, the noise when you've got fallible measurements. And similarly, uh, one way that we could try to do moral theory is to say. Oh, this, you know, the, the truth about ethics is just a combination of the truth about my intuitions about every single scenario. And you just kind of add them all together, um, and uh, in that case, we'll come up with a moral theory that does, that, at least for me, uh, there are no uh, strikes against it because it fits my intuition in every single case. Uh, but it's a very implausible theory, and we know that over time, uh, the moral intuitions of of a society change, and uh, we would think that if people mm-hmm. in the past had used a theory like this, they would have got very stupid answers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we also know that it differs between different people. And this seems to indicate that there's at least, um, assuming that something we're tracking at all, um, which I think I think there is, uh, then uh, we uh, we know that we've got some kind of a noisy measurement of it. And so we we can't just use uh, kind of you know data fit as the only criterion. I would try to use something like the fitting of the data. And also some notion of theoretical simplicity of the theory, uh, just like in science. Uh, but uh, not everyone agrees with that. Uh, in fact, that's actually an interesting topic where uh, I mean your question broaches on several different things uh, to do with uh, normative ethics, uh, uh, epistemology of ethics. Uh, so how do we come to know moral facts? Uh, some questions about moral psychology and about evolutionary psychology. Uh, Mm -hmm. and uh, also some questions about
0: meta-ethics. Well, Toby, you're not just a moral theorist, but a moral activist, I guess we might say, in that you're the founder of the organization Giving What We Can. And I spoke about, or I interviewed someone about Giving What We Can in an earlier interview, uh, Nick Beckstead, who launched a chapter of your organization at Rutgers University. But I'd like to ask you how you came to found the organization and uh, what successes have you had so far?
1: Uh, Sure. Uh, Well, yeah, I was uh, about uh, something like seven years ago uh, or six years ago, I was writing an essay uh, as part of my uh, graduate studies here at Oxford. And the essay was on the topic of uh, ought we always to forgo a luxury if that would allow us to save someone's life? Mm-hmm. And uh, at first, uh, you might think, yeah, well, obviously we should. I mean, that, that's a pretty simple essay topic. Um, but uh, what they were getting at uh, was these cases of global poverty and, uh, and whether uh, we are perhaps always in a situation like this where we can forgo a luxury to enable us to save someone's life, in which case maybe we should have to forgo all luxuries. Uh, in our lives. And it turns from something that seems quite trivial to something that seems very challenging, uh, for us. Uh, so I was looking at this and, uh, reading arguments, uh, by Peter Singer and others, uh, about this. And I'd always had some sympathy for this view, uh, because of a utilitarian, uh, leaning. And it, uh, yeah, really made me, made me think hard about it. And, uh, thinking practically, um, you know, could I live like this? Uh, how should I live? And I decided to try to work out what I could achieve in my life if I really wanted to. Uh, so that, I mean, that's quite a large project, and uh, I certainly haven't finished uh, working it out. Uh, but I've I've done some sketching, and uh, one thing to think about is that there's different areas of your life that you can achieve things in. So, for example, there's uh, through your work. Uh, there are also uh, the different things that you can achieve uh, through uh, your friends and family uh and things that you can do through volunteering. And of course there are things that you can do by donating money. Uh, so I thought, well the donating money part is uh is central to what I was thinking about at the time and also it seems like the type of part that's easier to quantify. Uh so how much money could I donate over the course of my life? Mm-hmm. And I worked out that uh that as a uh, UK academic I should be able to earn about one and a half million pounds over my life. And uh if I kept a similar living standard uh, to what I had at the time as a grad student, uh, that I would be able to give away about a million of the one and a half million, uh, and, yeah. uh, and that, which is which is quite a lot. So it's quite a nice uh, thing to think about when you're young as to what's the most I could do if I really wanted to.
0: Uh,
1: um, I should point out that if you're an academic in, uh, in the UK, uh, in the US, uh, that you make more than that. Uh, the same in Australia. It seems actually like being in the UK is a, a bad country uh, for an academic uh, as far as uh, donating money goes. Uh, but uh, I then thought about this and thought, yeah, what could I do with that? Uh, and so I became really interested in cost effectiveness. A, uh, a colleague of mine, uh, Gavrick Matheny, uh, sent me a, a link to uh, uh, to a fantastic report uh, done uh, by the Disease Control Priorities Project uh, where they uh, did some meta analysis of a whole lot of uh, papers that have been published on the cost-effectiveness of different ways of treating uh, various health problems. And so it wasn't just a case of looking at a health problem like AIDS as one big block, but instead they would say, well, there are heaps of different ways to treat or prevent AIDS, so let's look at uh, approaches of let's say, uh, treating one of the illnesses that you get um, if you've got AIDS and your immune system is lowered and it allows extra illnesses in. Um, so there was an illness called Carposi's sarcoma, and uh, they found that you can uh, produce about one, what they call, a, a one quality-adjusted life year. So that's kind of the equivalent of a year of life at full health, an extra year of life at full health. Um, but uh, the idea is that it could actually be 10 extra years of life at 10% of quality of health, or two extra years of life at half quality of health, or maybe it's just taking 10 existing years of life and improving them by 10%. But the idea is that it's something which is worth the same amount as an extra year of life at full health, and they call that a quality, a quality just life year. So it's a fairly utilitarian type concept. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they wanted to look at, in in this book, to measure these things by this and say, if you're donating to, or, you know, funding different programs of different interventions, how many of these quality adjusted life years can you produce for a given amount of money? And so if you have, uh, if you have $30,000, uh, and you want to treat carposis sarcoma, uh, you can produce about one year of uh, quality adjusted life. Uh, whereas if you, uh, instead do different approaches, so for example, if you, uh, instead, uh, um, use antiretroviral drugs to fight, uh, HIV itself, uh, you can instead produce about uh, I think it's about 15 years of, of life uh, for the same amount of money. Uh, if you go for education for high-risk groups, you can get it up to about 100 years of life. Uh, and then there are some other approaches. Uh, that's about the best that we know of uh, in terms of HIV-AIDS. But if you look at other uh, areas of health, you can get all the way up to about uh, 10,000 years of life at full health for the same amount of money. Hmm. Just looking at HIV-AIDS uh, interventions, they span about three orders of magnitude in total uh, from the least cost-effective to the most cost-effective. The most cost-effective does a 1,000 times as much good as the the least. And if you're willing to go uh, into other areas, you can do up to 10,000 times as much good. Uh, Mm -hmm. So this really made me uh, very interested for two reasons. One reason was that uh, it meant that I could do a huge amount with my money. Uh, If uh, if I take this seriously, then by giving away, um, it's about uh, $1.5 million uh, U.S., uh, over my life, uh, which is a million pounds, uh, that I would be able to, uh, uh lead to, uh, something like 400,000 years of life at full health equivalent, mm-hmm. uh, over my life, which is, which is amazing. So caring about where you give it to is also incredibly important. And for the mm-hmm. average, uh, American, it's, uh, I think quite possible, uh, to give, uh, ten times as much as, uh, they would be giving normally. And to be giving it to organisations which are at least ten times as effective. And if someone did both those things, then they'd have a hundred times the impact. Uh, so I started to think really seriously about this idea of um, of giving more and giving more effectively, and trying to do the, the really the best you can with your donations. Uh, so from this, I decided to uh, to set up a society of people who are taking this seriously and who are willing to uh, to donate a significant portion of their income over the rest of their life uh, to uh, uh, the places they thought that could most cost effectively fight uh causes or effects of poverty in the developing world. I, I chose that focus area to narrow it in. Um, I uh, I set it up about a year ago and now we have eighty members and uh, uh together uh the members of the organisation have pledged about fifteen million uh US dollars uh, over the courses of their careers. Uh, and that's enough money uh using uh these figures I had before to produce about 7 million quality-adjusted life years. Uh, and to put that into perspective, uh, 7 million years is, uh, if that was all lived in a row, uh, that's enough time to take us back to uh, uh, the split between uh, Homo and Pan, so uh, the uh, uh, between humans and uh, chimpanzees. Uh, their common ancestor was about 7 million mm-hmm. years ago. Uh, so it's, you know, it's, it's, it's quite a mind-boggling amount of uh, of benefit that uh, could be created by a relatively small group of people.
0: You know, Toby, what I love about Giving What We Can is that it places the emphasis on doing as much objective good as possible. And the problem with a lot of charity is that we're really just giving to the charity and we're purchasing warm, fuzzy feelings about what we're doing. And so we'll do, we'll give to the charity that gives us warm fuzzies um, rather than doing the research and figuring out what actually does the most good in terms of, you know, quality adjusted uh, life years or something like that. Uh, And so, you know, this is just such a great thing to put the emphasis on, you know what, if you're going to give to charity, maybe you should give to making the world a better place rather than purchasing warm fuzzies. If you want warm fuzzies, get them somewhere else. Um, but let's come together and make the world a better place.
1: Yeah, well, exactly. As, as one of my uh, friends puts it, there's a lot of people who, uh, who want to make the world uh, a better place, uh, but there aren't that many people who want to make the world as good a place as possible. Uh, you know, There are people who want to make a difference, but not to mm. make as much positive difference as possible.
0: Well, Toby, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for coming on the show.
1: Okay, yeah, thanks very much for having me.